when a church welcomes people into membership, uh, and when we stand and we read the covenant, and when uh, they uh, witness the public signing of that book that has our doctrinal statement and our church covenant in it, uh, we bring together two elements that uh, most people don't associate together, uh, namely love and authority. Love and authority. We love to talk about love and all of the happy entailments involved in love. Um, acceptance, welcome, approval, joy, blessing, support, encouragement. Hmm. It's me. Uh, I just get rid of this? All right. I could have just turned it off. Uh, we don't, though. We love to talk about love, but we don't really like to talk about authority very much. Um, accountability, confrontation, obedience, submission. So the way many people think about love and authority, these two can't possibly go together. The, the, see, the prevailing line of thinking is that if you love someone, it means you support them unconditionally. It means you accept them, you, you uh, affirm them. Loving relationships, so we're taught, are not a place for challenge or critique or rebuke or control. I think that's the dominating way that we think about love and the way we think about authority. It's not new, though. You're probably among, uh, many of you are among the uh, millions of Americans who, when you were in junior or senior high school, had to read this little book called The Scarlet Letter. It's by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, it's a classic work, of which, of course, means no one ever reads it voluntarily. Um, the Scarlet Letter, of course, the main character is, is a woman by the name of Hester Prynne, and Hester Prynne has committed adultery, which is evident by her developing pregnancy. And the church, uh, as a punishment, her, her Puritan church community makes her wear a red letter A on her clothes. And she walks around all the time with this as her identifying mark. And the main male character, of course, in the Scarlet Letter is uh, named Arthur Dimsdale. Arthur Dimsdale is the town's pastor responsible for enforcing the codes of the church, and he is the baby's father, Hester's baby's father. And he's a tormented soul. I told you people don't read this book voluntarily. see the picture that's developing already. Hawthorne tells the story much better than I do, trust me. Um, he's, he's a pitiful man, he's a weak man, and the problem is he doesn't have the courage to own up to his own sin, uh, and he leaves Hester to suffer all of the abuse and uh, um, hatred and judgment of this town by herself. Now, the surrounding the, 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 this couple, of course, are the town residents. They're old, they're ugly, they're mean. They spend their time spewing venom about Hester's sins and what she's done and what kind of person she is and how she's probably getting off easy and how they should have treated her even worse than they, than they already uh, do. Hester, in the story, it doesn't take long to figure out where Hawthorne's sympathies lie. Hester is young, she's beautiful, she's the embodiment of love. The townspeople, though, they're the ones 
uh, they have the authority of the church. So Hawthorne here is obviously he's putting Arthur Dimsdale in the middle, and he's got love on one side, he's got the authority on the other, and he's a tormented soul because everybody would choose love. But then there's this awful authority figure, this, this church and these people. It's striking, you know, the book of Proverbs uh, draws a picture of an adulterous woman too. But she looks much different in the book of Proverbs than she does in the Scarlet Letter. And, and, and Nathaniel Hawthorne's understanding of love and authority in their relationship is far from what the Bible says that they, that they are. When, when properly conceived, love and authority, they go together. The reason for this is because of love's aim. Love is always tilted toward good. Love, to love someone truly, you must be oriented toward their good. Or to use even a biblical word we become more familiar with as we walk through Leviticus, uh, to be aimed toward their holiness. You can't maintain that orientation of good or holiness in a loving relationship without authority. Knowing that will help us, I think, as we read and understand what is one of the most sobering passages in all of the Old Testament. And I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 26. Leviticus, chapter 26. Uh, this is our second week in this chapter, the second and final week uh, in this chapter, as we have been walking through the book of Leviticus. We're in the final chapters of this book. Next week, Lord willing, we will read through uh, chapter 27 and bring uh, our study of the book of Leviticus to a close. You'll remember that this is a book that tells the Israelites, the special nation that God has adopted as his own, it tells them how to live with him. Unlike any other nation on the planet, God has chosen the Israelites. He rescued them from slavery, and he's going to move in with them, which brings a host of blessings and certain responsibilities and this unique covenant that we have been reading through the book of Leviticus. And like most ancient covenants, the book of Leviticus ends here with a series of blessings and curses. Uh, we read the blessings last week. God is, is good. He's, he's generous. He um, rewards us in, in ways far greater than we deserve. For those who turn to him, God is, is gracious and, and merciful. Jesus, of course, said in John chapter 10, I have come to bring you life, real life, abundant life. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he said, I am a worker for your joy. I've come to tell you about the grace of God and the mercy of God and, and his kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. Now, what follows, though, these blessings are this series of curses. Why are there curses here in this chapter? The reason it is, there are curses here is because if you genuinely love someone... You must be committed to their good. And what that means is that in every loving relationship, there are hard truths that have to be spoken and hard duties that have to be fulfilled. You don't love someone if you never say hard things to them. We should read this passage that we're going to look at here as a, as a series of sobering warnings. This is about God's ability and willingness to clean house to press down hard on his people, to discipline them. So we have to read it very carefully. 
You're going to notice some things as, as we go along. First of all, if you were here last week, you'll see some overlap between the blessings and the curses. There's some reversal that's going on in this, this passage. Um, there were blessings promised that just the opposite is going to happen in this curse section. The other thing you're going to notice is as we go through, there is a, there's a pattern and structure to this chapter, but there's a lot of overlap. The pattern and structure is, is evident by the paragraphs that start with the, the word if. So in verse 14, it says, but if, and then verse 18, if after all this, and then verse 21, if you remain. So that, that's the basic structure, and there's just a series of, of building curses uh, in this passage. And before digging into them specifically, though, I, I want to answer two questions. First of all, what is a curse? What is a curse? To curse someone in the Bible is to remove or banish them from the place of blessing. That's what cursing in the, is in the Bible. Removing or banishing a person from the place of blessing. Now, uh, we think of uh, curses uh, somewhat superstitiously. This is not voodoo magic that's happening in the book of Leviticus. This is not um, God shaking a stick with a skull on the end of it and rattling it at the Israelites um, to, to magically curse them. He's speaking to them about what he is going to do as he removes his blessing from them and what's going to happen to them. Now, second, there's a more important question even than that one, I think, is who is this passage for? It's a very important question. It's answered actually for us specifically in verse 15. Look at what verse 15 says. I'll just read the portion that applies here. If you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, the text continues. We'll read that in a moment. The the two key verbs here in this passage tell us who this passage is for are those words reject and abhor. If you reject my decrees and abhor my laws. These are powerful verbs. And Alan Ross describes someone who rejects God's decrees and, and uh, abhors his laws with these three descriptors. These are, this is what's true of these men and women. Those who reject God's laws and abhor his commands are those, first of all, who have no loyalty to God. He is talking to men and women in the nation of Israel who have no loyalty to him. In a few minutes, we're going to get to uh, verse 46. And in verse 46, it says again, I am the Lord. Do you know how many times that phrase appears in Leviticus? 49 times. That's the 49th appearance of this phrase, I am the Lord. God, throughout this passage, is making this claim about who he is. And those, this passage is for people who read that and hear that, I am the Lord, and say, I don't care. I'm not following this God. I'm not loyal to this God. Secondly, those who reject and abhor his, his commands uh, are those who hold his commands in contempt. They hold God's commands in contempt. It goes beyond indifference to, to rejection. You hate what God says. You dislike what God says. You don't want what God says. Third, this is for people who want nothing to do with the covenant itself. They have no loyalty to God, they hate God's word, and they have no interest in the covenant. They want nothing to do with God's covenant. They don't want him to be their Lord, they don't, um, and have no desire for a relationship with him. In essence, this passage is describing people who are not believers. 
people who are sinful and remain in that condition before God. And here what we, what we see as we, we read this passage is a very important difference between the Old Covenant in the Old Testament and the New Covenant in the New Testament. Under the Old Covenant, you became a covenant partner with God by being born an Israelite. If your parents were Israelites, if you could trace your genealogy back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you were born in covenant with God as part of the nation of Israel. And inevitably, there would be people who would grow up in that nation. You were circumcised if you were a male, circumcised in the eighth day as a sign of the covenant. And inevitably, growing up in that covenant relationship with God, there would be people who would choose not to obey. You can think about it. Perhaps some of you could understand this. If, if you are a rabid Yankees fan, you love the Yankees, and you meet the woman of your dreams, who she herself loves the Yankees, right? And you wear the blue and white pinstripes together because you love the Yankees. What happens if one of your children is born in your household and grows up to be a Red Sox fan? Some of you are thinking that's a sign of the grace of God. That's not where I'm going with this. You could be from the time you are born, nurtured in the Yankees and taught about the Yankees and and encouraged to love the Yankees and still end up a Red Sox fan. Um, That's what's happening here, only much more seriously than that, right? Born a descendant of Abraham, uh, taught about the stories of Abraham and Moses, and you grow up and you just have no interest. You're in the nation, so you have a covenant with God, but you yourself are not a believer. Now, the new covenant is different. The new covenant is specifically and only for believers. Today, you are not born physically into a covenant relationship with God based on your nationality or based on your ethnicity or your parentage. You are only a member of the new covenant by faith, by believing. That's why in our church we don't baptize babies because no one is born a Christian. You're not born into the new covenant. You become a member of the new covenant by faith, by believing. And if you are in the new covenant here, you have a different relationship with pain and sorrow than is described in this passage here. If you're genuinely a follower of Jesus Christ, the new covenant, in the new covenant, God promises that when pain and suffering comes into your life, pain and suffering that he at times introduces into your life, that pain and suffering is for your good. It's for your growth. It is discipline like a father disciplining you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's the promise that the Bible makes. God doesn't waste pain in the lives of his children. That's not, though, what's happening here. This passage, though, is for those who are unbelievers in the nation of Israel. And God's focus, it's mentioned here, but the primary focus of this passage here is not to redeem the people, not to awaken them, not to to discipline them and make them more mature. The purpose here of this passage is that God is cleaning house of unbelievers within the Old Covenant. So... the most specific application, its most serious application for us today as we read this passage is for people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ but are not actually followers of Jesus Christ. We're under no illusions. 
of the pastors of this church, the elders in our congregation, we're not ignorant to the idea that there are people in our church who are not genuinely followers of Jesus Christ. We love you. We're not on a witch hunt for you. We're glad that you're here. Uh, But there are people in every congregation who are not genuinely followers of Jesus. And the New Testament speaks about this. Of the 12 followers of Jesus, one walked away in rejection and betrayal. In John chapter 6, Jesus had spoken some particularly hard things. And the end of John 6 says, many of the disciples stopped following him after he said these things. In 1 John chapter 2, the apostle John writes about people who were part of the church, but who left. And John says, they went out to show that they were not really a part of us. People within the congregation who are not genuinely followers of Jesus Christ. You may be deceived about your own condition. That's possible. But understand, the condition you are in is a grave. And actually, it's made worse by your constant exposure to the gospel as you hear over and over again of the mercy found in Jesus Christ and you do not personally trust in him. You are in danger. These are specific passages, specific warnings in this chapter for this covenant nation, but do not underestimate God's ability to press down. Now, I want to read through this passage here together with you, shall we? Verses 14 through 17 begin with general warnings about sickness and defeat. I'm going to go through the curse sections, and this is some general warnings about sickness and defeat. Look what God's word says. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. Then in verses 18 through 20 here, the emphasis is on drought and famine. Drought and famine. Notice here as I read how these blessings are reversed. Remember in the blessing section, God had promised seasonal rains that would come. Whenever you need the rain, the rain will come. And now here, God says, I'm going to turn the, uh, the sky to iron. No, no rain. Verse 18. If after this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. It's a phrase in that paragraph that deserves attention. It's going to show up again. I will punish you for your sins seven times over. Now, evidently, this is speaking here about God's ability to press down and how his response to the people will be firm and direct And yet it is also a measured response. God is not raging here. He's in control. He can speak about how he's going to respond to them proportionally. This is not God having a temper tantrum. 
Has that ever happened to you in your house? You are so angry that you speak or you shout or you, you spank your children because you, in your anger that's, uh, that's out of control. That's not what is happening here. It's not okay when it happens in your home. And it's not what God is doing here. This is not God raging. This is a measured response. What would the text be if it said, I will punish you for your sins ten times over? Now, verses 21 and 22, wild beasts. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you, and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle, and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. Uh, Then, uh, nature, what nature is turning on them, isn't it? These wild beasts. Verse 23, war. If in spite of these things you do not accept my correction but continue to be hostile toward me, I myself will be hostile toward you and will afflict you for your sins seven times over. And I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you withdraw into your cities, I will send a plague among you, and you will be given into enemy hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven, because you'll have so little bread. And they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. Remember again, God's blessings to them. You'll eat and be satisfied. Didn't he say that to them? You will will consistently be satisfied with the the harvest that I will provide. If, though, you uh, do not accept my correction, you'll never be satisfied. Uh, Verses 27 through 39 here, we have total destruction and exile. If in spite of this you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger I will be hostile toward you, and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sins, sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places. I will cut down your incense altars and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste to your sanctuaries, and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations, and I will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste, and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate, and you are in the country of your enemies." Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have its rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. Do you remember we, had just, we just read this in chapter 25, didn't we, about the Sabbath year? Once every seven years they were to let the land grow fallow. It was a Sabbath year. And the Israelites, God is saying, if you do not do this, I will give the land rest by ripping you from it. And then the land will have its rest that it should have. I'm going to just pause here for, for just a moment and, and uh, address one or two objections that you might have to this passage. First, uh, I have a word of comfort for you. We understand from reading the Bible that not all suffering in this world is a result of God's punishment. I know that there are some of you in this room who have a particularly soft and sensitive spirit, and, and you're hearing this, and you're thinking about the sickness and the suffering in your own life, and you're wondering, is God after me? Is he, is he punishing me like this because of the suffering in my life? 
That may be true, but the Bible is clear that not all suffering is a result of sin. I remember my favorite story, uh, one of my favorite stories of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 9. A blind man comes to Jesus, and the disciples, acting, believing that every sin is a result of uh, suffering, they, or every suffering is a result of sin, rather, they say to Jesus, they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I've pointed this out to you before, this wonderful story. How could it be that the disciples think that he sinned so that he was born blind? What was he doing in the womb? Uh, Jesus says, no one sinned. This happened to him so that the glory of God might be seen in his life. This is a word of comfort. There's people with sensitive spirits, and I want to share that with you, but... There is also a reason to be disturbed here. Maybe you want to object to this passage because this doesn't really sound like Jesus. You'd like to say, haven't we gotten past this retribution? I mean, the Old Testament is full of all sorts of horrible things like this. But haven't we gotten past that? I mean, Jesus came. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He, I mean, Jesus came. He preached peace and love. He wasn't mean like those Old Testament prophets. He, he didn't... He, he was a friend to sinners. He stopped the stoning of, of women. He forgave tax collectors. Jesus welcomed everyone. Haven't we gotten past passages like this? That's true that Jesus did welcome everyone. But he was not silent about God's wrath. He did not sever the connection between authority and love. I have three, printed out three quotes there from the Gospels. This is what the Lord Jesus said. I could give you more. But uh, here's a few of them. Look what Jesus said. It's on the back, I think. From Luke 10. Woe to you, Chorazin. That's a city where he did some miracles. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Another city where he did miracles. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, another city, will you be exalted into heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. You are going to hell, Jesus said to them. Well, Luke 13, Jesus is telling a story about a king, and this king's going to say to them, he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Matthew 13. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is not a postmodern progressive hipster. Jesus is, is very clear about God's wrath. And when we read the New Testament properly we understand that both God's mercy and God's wrath are there in stark contrast for us. Now, let's, let's finish reading here, verse 36. As for those of you who are left, I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a wind-blown leaf will put them to flight. You're going to be so afraid you're going to run from blowing leaves. 
They will run as though fleeing from the sword, and they will fall, even though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword, even though no one is pursuing them. So you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins. Also because of their ancestors' sins, they will waste away. Read this very carefully. Notice how exacting and precise and powerful God is. He can, uh, how much resistance can he withstand? How hard can God push back against you? How creative can he be in dismantling the life that you think you can build yourself? How long can he push back against you? How many ideas does he have? God can rip the flesh off of your bones. He can turn to powder the foundation of the new life that you think you're going to build without him. God can shred the relationships that you think you will form that are going to make up for having any sort of relationship with him because you're looking somewhere else to be happy. God can press down hard, very hard. This is a chapter that's filled with with merely physical troubles. In the New Testament, we read about spiritual dangers. Jesus said, don't worry about the person who can hurt your body. You better fear God who can throw both your body and soul into hell. The Bible warns us. God loves you enough to tell you the truth about the consequences of the choices you may make. You cannot remain in rebellion against him. You have to turn to him. You have to cry out to him and recognize the seriousness of your condition. You have got to plead with him for reconciliation. I know that some of you in our congregation may at this moment in time be thinking of people that you know, people that you love, who used to sit in these pews and are gone. And if, if, if they're your children, that's agonizing. And you think to yourself, you struggle, don't you, a lot. What does it mean for me as a faithful follower of Christ to show love to them? How do I, how do I interact with them? Don't make Leviticus 26 the theme of your relationship with them. That's not the path I would suggest you to go. But if you never warn them, you're not being faithful to them. God, he tells us the truth, and he, he, with, with this pleading, come back, turn to me. The consequences are grave. If you walk away, you have no hope. And I have the pleasure, the good pleasure of telling you how God will respond to you. It's described for us in verse 40. Look what verse 40 says. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, um, 
the text means, I think it's speaking to the extent of their repentance. They're, they're willing to make amends. They can't pay for this. If the, if the, the recognition of their condition is such that uh, we, have, we have disobeyed God and, and we owe him everything. Verse 42, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. Verse 42, their uncircumcised hearts are humbled. God's not talking here uh, merely about a ritual or an empty confession or some sort of meritorious act. This is heart work. Uncircumcised hearts that are humbled. This is recognizing the true condition of your soul before God. Verse 43, For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of all this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. Those same verbs that we looked at in verse 15, they're here in verse 44, aren't they? They may reject my commands and abhor my laws, but I will not reject or abhor them. And he will do it for the sake of the promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Romans chapter 11 teaches us that these promises actually are still uh, uh, waiting to be fulfilled for the nation of Israel. I expect this to happen sometime in the future. Can I remind you that, that as we read this, after the Lord Jesus has come, we don't call on God to remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We call on God to remember Jesus. He's the way to be reconciled with God. The Bible tells us that when he came, he became a curse for us. We deserved all of these things that were in this chapter. But Jesus uh, uh, bore all of the active opposition and suffering that God could impose. He bore that curse for us when he took on himself God's wrath when he died for us on the cross. And all who turned to him with uncircumcised Humble hearts find life and forgiveness. God remembers what he promised his son. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Just to whom? Just to his son, the Lord Jesus. And we come before him and we don't say like the Israelites, Oh God, remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember Jacob. We come before him and we say, Oh God, remember Jesus. Remember what you sent him to do. Remember what you promised him. Remember that you said that everybody who comes in faith in him finds life. Listen carefully for the sake of your own soul. God speaks the truth to us. Hard words. Warning words. You must, you have to heed this warning. Let's pray, shall we? (laughs) 
John speaks to us, doesn't he, in the, the Apostle of John. And, and he speaks about people who are a, a part of the congregation, part of the church, who left. And their leaving was evidence that they never really believed in the first place. Judas was there, wasn't he? He heard all the things that Jesus said. He performed miracles. He preached about Jesus. There came a point in time where his his faith was revealed to be a fraud. He turned on him and walked away. We're not ignorant about the fact that there are men and women who are part of our congregation whose whose faith is, is not real. I would plead with you to be reconciled to God. God can press hard down on you. Turn to him in the Lord Jesus. Perfect opportunity to do so. Serious and sober warnings. Any of our elders would be happy to talk to you about this today. Ed, Ed shared announcements. He saw his face. He'd be happy to talk to you. You can talk to Pastor Scott. Talk to any, any, any of our elders. Greg would be happy to talk to you this morning. At the end of the service, I'll, I'll be at the front here. And I, I'd be thrilled to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you tell us the truth. That you love us enough to warn us. You didn't just warn us. You came and rescued us in the Lord Jesus. And and we are are so thankful. God, keep us uh, sober. Uh, Keep us from being naive. Keep us realistic before us before you and before one another, that we would be faithful in warning and caring for one another for these very serious and sobering reasons. You give and you give. Your generosity is is beyond what we can ask or imagine, but you can push back hard. You are worthy of our deepest adoration and our um, abundant devotion. Cultivate that in us truly in our church. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen.